three, two, one. All right, this is Into the Absurd, episode 19 with Vincent Trombatoi. He's a Juris Doctorate and an attorney at law. He also studied a lot of things in college, and he's kind of a very interdisciplinary guy. He does a lot of things. He's starting businesses. He works in law. He's all over the place. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Hi, Greg. Thanks. Uh, sure. I guess a little bit about my education background. Uh, I have a degree in biology uh, and I have minors in chemistry and political science. Um, so I've studied quite a lot of political science and government, how the how governments work, especially with my Juris Doctorate in law. Um, and then I have some businesses that are on the side as well. I say on the side, but I also consult, do business consulting as well as I'm an attorney um, for businesses, small businesses, and do interactions with uh, and, and practice in the areas of intellectual property and business law as well. So, yeah, and so like intellectual property, that's uh, that's copyright and things like that. Right. right? So copyright, right? Copyrights, trademarks, trade secrets, those types of, I guess, non. Uh, non-physical assets that companies might have that really make, you know, that are important to them. So, so with this, uh, so you studied biology. So are you, are you interested at all in the philosophy of science, like bioethics and things like that? Well, I would think bio, I think bioethics would just be a, uh, a subset of ethics in and of itself. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm interested in ethics and applying ethics to the study of science. Yes. So I've had some dealing, you know, we've taken ethics, we're just taking, I haven't taken per se a whole ethics class on, but in biology or for science, but we certainly discussed, you know, medical ethics and those types of topics in my studies. Um, so I, I would say that, yes, I'm interested in bioethics or, at the ethics of science yeah it's kind of i mean it's kind of a vast topic but i mean as far as as far as uh, your your studies in law go i know you're you're interested in politics you're interested in uh why governments fail like the current problems with democracies and i know right now in our per in our current political climate it's extremely polarized and half of that or at least probably most of that is really due to social media and our technology and kind of it's it's well all the algorithms kind of have a tendency to cause people to see something and then react and then when they react to it um it will send you more reactive content you know, I don't know if you have any commentary on that. Well, um, we can comment on that, I guess. Yeah, there's a, I mean, it, social media has certainly exacerbated um, human, underlying human psychology, I guess the common term now would be you know, psychological hacks, right? Um, yeah. So if you want somebody to act in certain ways, you can press certain buttons do that and social media has found a way to do that so there's a psychology there's whole scientific there's whole psychology departments at stanford 
that interact with those types of things that have a whole the whole disciplinary interest in those types of discussions and they talk about gamifying you know software applications and so they talk about you know gamifying new social media platforms there's and there's been a profound and you know, I want to talk about you know one of the i say the one of the issues or the problems with democracies today and social media has exploited those i don't think they've caused it but they've certainly exploited them and made them more readily apparent before it was not as easy to exploit those psychological issues in the, the human psyche as before yeah i guess i mean social media is almost like the uh the highest point that advertising has come to kind of that that thing that you were telling me the other day about sigmund freud's his nephew was it yes uh yes so Ed, edward bernays is really a uh he is the intersection between modern psychology and sort of and in a way ethics as well the the ideas that sigmund freud were uh, discussing in his describing psychology of the human mind uh, really goes back to the same ideas of Plato and Aristotle as to what's real and then obviously Hobbes and Locke discuss of what's human nature uh, what is you know what's man's natural state and Bernays Edward Bernays was Freud's nephew and he can he created, he came to America from Austria, I believe from Austria, Freud's from Austria, I believe uh, his, his nephew was from Austria as well. So he came to America and started, you know, basically started the, well, he started using propaganda uh, or what they called propaganda at the time, which he, he termed as public relations. So the term public relations is really, he's the, the father of the public relations um, industry. And so he used it, he used Edward Bernays's, I mean, Edward Bernays used Freud's concepts uh, of these baseline psychological, uh, the, really the human psychological baseline to really make people buy things. And he also wrote books besides marketing and purchasing. And when he turned it to a consumer uh, product, he used it with the, the government as well. He used got a, he was a consultant with the U.S. government during the, uh, I want to say, I believe during the League of Nations discussions with Woodrow Wilson. And so he used his concepts of how to negotiate and um, change people's minds on certain things based on Freud's psychology, um, psychological principles at the time. They were kind of... I mean, now Freud is Freud has been often been repudiated in his theories, but a lot of them stand true today. Some of his um, basic foundational concepts stand true. Um, obviously, the some of the more racy things that he talked about. It, not everything's linked to sex, right? Uh, yeah, <laughs> they kind of disprove that, but um, people's basic instincts. And really, the basic instincts that Freud talks about 
the hierarchy of needs and psycho uh, psychologically are really the hierarchy of needs for a government and what a government are there for. They're there to protect you. They're there for society. Um, and they're there to help you find your purpose or help you exploit, I say, find your purpose or be, make life meaningful or not help you do it, but to enable you to do that. Um, and that's what we see in the U.S. Constitution, you know, and discussed also in the Declaration of Independence. But the U.S. Constitution from the very, from the very outset uh, discusses really <clears throat> common defense promotes general welfare, secure the blessings of liberty, um, so life, liberty, and happiness. And, you know, the, so the founders took a lot from, they took a lot from Rousseau, they talked a lot from John Locke, they took a lot from Montesquieu, and those ideas of justice and liberty and freedom, um, but also really the, the baseline things that government and people need, which are defense and general welfare, uh, tranquility, peace. Um, and so those are all things that people, every person wants and, and really needs in a psychological way in order to pursue their happiness. Um, and so the way that Edward Bernays and Freud um, really are the cross-section for the last hundred years, uh, they set things in motion, or at least Bernays did, set things in motion that really affected democracies all over the world. So Bernays really wanted to, uh, he actually wrote a book called Engineering Consent, where the idea was that governments could really engineer the people to do the the will of the people as you as you talk about with um with Rousseau talks about uh, general will uh and so he used that you know Bernays used that concept and discussed it the concept through manipulation in a way uh through manipulating the general will to whatever the the rulers wanted uh, the people in power wanted to do and we're now at the way we're in a place now where social media gives people in power or people who want to be in power a platform to easily more easily sway the general will or at least um, parts of it um, so it's being used social media is not just being used in the united states uh, problematically but it's being used all over western europe um, so democracies across the world and there's studies that have shown this that democracies across the world have uh, been in decline since probably, I guess, last 10 years or so, more particularly after 2012 or so, but, um, and it's ramped up in the last five or six, all based on the explosion and use of social media. Yeah. And it's, I guess like the biggest part of this problem is that, yeah, we have a democracy and yes, we can go and we can vote for president and i mean there's lots of problems associated with this but the main thing that you're kind of talking about is that you know we have the choice to vote for whoever we want we have the choice to make these decisions but if our decisions are being heavily influenced by the people who in power then do we really have like the freedom to make these decisions are we really making the decisions or are they well right uh rousseau talks about informed consent 
um, of the pop of the general will. And so everybody has to be in. Rousseau talks uh, his theory and the way that he really envisions uh, IAS's utopian um, government or peoples is that it was a practically it was a, a direct democracy um, where every citizen was involved and discussed you know the laws that were being passed and the rules that were going to be passed and the regulations and was involved directly in their democracy in a very high level um, everyone's their own representative and he thought that if you weren't your own representative that you were going to be exploited by your by someone else that was speaking on your behalf um, we didn't go down that path uh, the, the United States didn't go down that path and as far as I know I don't think we have I don't think there's any direct democracies. And uh, Rousseau even just says that there was only a couple of examples uh, that he could give that would direct democracy really work. It only works in a very small communities. And so it, obviously it does, it's not gonna work here in the United States or many other places at this point in time because um, the complexity of governments are expanding instead of contracting. Um, and it's a, you know, the governmental structures, I say governmental structures, but rules and treaties between countries are expanding. Uh, we, ha we have regional governments all over the world. I say governments, but regional uh, agreements between countries all over the world and parties, you say parties. Parties are states, as they would say in the Enlightenment era. Uh, Rock, uh, Locke and Rousseau would say the state. Um, but we have countries that have agreements all over the world now where they're regional governments. There's, um, you know, NAFTA, there's the EU, um, ASEAN and Asia, I believe there's, um, um, I'm going to get the acronym wrong, but I think it's Mercosul in, in South America. And there's a South American, there's an African um, continental type of, it's not necessarily a government, but it's a legislative body and uh, or a body that talks about treaties. And a lot of it is based on it starts off as a, a marketplace, as a way to control and or increase trade among the countries and among the peoples. Um, and actually, Montesquieu says that uh, he, he stated that really morals, uh, man became gentler as we started to trade among each other. Um, and if you take that out to our current situation, it's true. Um, and that was really the EU was the EU was set up uh, in a way that we that there wouldn't be any more world wars started from the European countries um, to stop the wars that had been going on for centuries in Europe. They said if we're a one marketplace, we're not going to fight each other. Um, and so that's kind of a Montesquieuian um, philosophy or an idea uh, theory, and it's worked out so far for, with Europe and other places, other parts of the world have put it in place as well. So, you know, things are going to a worldwide, I say worldwide, uh, and we have the World Trade Organization as well. Uh, and, and really, it, but there's mitigating factors as we go back to the social media uh, issues. There's mitigating factors of democracy and, and these types of treaties or uh, agreements, peaceable agreements between countries um, that, you know, Countries not in democracy, tyrannies, or you know those different types of tyrannies, right? There's rule by 
you know, uh, Cicero and Cicero or Aristotle, they all talk about different types of, um, you know, rules. So you rule by many, rule by one, um, uh, rule by many, rule by many, rule by a few, rule by one. Um, and then so going from a democracy, normally it's a step, either it's a stepwise uh, function that you go by rule by many, rule by a few, and then you go rule by one. We are sort of a rule by few now. Uh, we think that we, I mean, well, a lot of people think we're, um, we are a democratic republic and uh, there's a lot of, um, a lot of people that don't quite understand that, I guess, but so we have representative government. But in the United States, there's been, I, I would say since probably 20, some studies have come out and shown that really the United States is a is really ruled by only a few few families. So we're becoming more oligarchy, more of an oligarchy than we are a democracy or a democratic republic. And the one of the issues around that and, and things pushing social media are the corporations. So problem let's go back with problems with democracies. So if you look at how the US government was set up, the founding fathers were deeply, were very deep students of some of the, the philosophers I've mentioned so far, Aristotle, Cicero, Rousseau, Locke. Uh, a lot of the ideas, the new age ideas, the new age ideas, but the uh, enlightenment ideas of all men are created equal, the idea that we're endowed with inalienable rights, those were all enlightenment ideas. The structures of the government itself were pulled from different places and, and sort of Rousseau and Aristotle, I mean, I say Rousseau, excuse me, not Rousseau, Cicero and Aristotle and Plato. Cicero is, is a later, later, uh, he's a Roman, actually a Roman orator and Roman philosopher. He took from Aristotle and Plato uh, and Socrates as well but they structured the government. They even talked about, you know, the balances in a way. Checks and balances weren't necessarily their, their idea, but they had the, the baseline uh, foundation for, for the idea to be brought up on. And so the founders drew out what they basically drew out, a, a system of government that had enlightenment theory of personhood, of who we are as man, and then structured the government with the, the best ideas of humankind and the worst ideas of humankind. What is the worst humankind is, is really what Hobbes talks about. We're all in a state of war all the time. We all want everybody what everybody else has. And so in a state of, quote, state of nature, you're completely free to do whatever you want. We're all equal to be tyrants over everyone else, uh, over another. And so you could kill someone in the state of nature. If there was no laws, you know, the state of nature was no laws or no type of government, what could you do? You could do anything. You could steal, kill someone. And just to get, you know, to, and they talked about wanting, basically wanting things and really meeting your hierarchy of needs, right? So if you wanted property, you know, reasonable, you know, so property and things like that, steal some from someone. Um, so Hobbes saw the ideas, well, the people need a protector. And so that's why he, that's basically his idea in Leviathan and why monarchies are here. Why he liked the monarchy, uh, sovereignty uh, that way, the, 
the absolute sovereign, was a protector, basically, and a, a arbiter of people. So really, they kind of used, the founders sort of used the idea that what's the best way of keeping everyone in check? Well, if everyone has, is, is overly ambitious and everyone wants the, the most honor, I guess, or the, all the power, um, how do you keep one from getting the other? You know, how do you keep power from being pooled in one area? Well, you give checks on each one. And so they created the checks and balances and gave us the identity through our founding documents, uh, both the Declaration of Independence and our Constitution of the goal of what humankind really should be. So the best and the worst. Uh, and they kind of merged it together in a very, obviously, two very elegant documents beautiful documents that we have uh, as our foundation for our, our government our, and our peoples really our um, ethos, right? So our ethos really comes out of those documents and they're, they're, they're beautiful, but at the same time, they're contradictory because they, they use the worst case scenario and things that, you know, um, that Bernays and, and Sigmund Freud talked about, really the, 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 the base human experience, psychological um, what's human going to do? They used that because they knew how people were and they merged it with um, idealistic forms of equality that the world had never never seen in a government before. So what the, the founders didn't know was really they didn't know the future and they didn't know the power that corporations would have. And so corporations, they didn't, well, they didn't really, they gave power to the legislators. The legislators are supposed to be the most powerful body. Now, there's been books written about how the, uh, the executive, in our, in our case, uh, the president, has really wrested power from the rest of the other two bodies mm. of government and taken over. And some of that goes to the fact that, there have, that we've divided our people into factions, uh, you know, a party system that we have. There's a two-party system, and really it's, there's no way for a third party to come into play in the United States. Very small, small chance of that happen, happening, and uh, the probability is very low. And so people talk about voting for a third party. It's, it's, almost, it's almost basically, it's, an, it's, a, um, uh, it's not throwing, not quite throwing it away, throwing your vote away, but it's close. Yeah, I mean, it's so kind of like a protest vote. So, yeah, it's a protest vote at that uh -huh. point. Um, you can say that you voted, but you didn't vote for either one of the, the main parties. And so John Adams and the founding fathers were quite terrified of factions and parties, um, although they helped create them in a way that John, uh, Thomas Jefferson and, and Adams uh, and Hamilton kind of created the factions and um, but they're just, they were worried about factions because they were factions more easily controllable. If there was a bunch of different factions, they were going to be, it's less likely that they could be controlled by a small group of individuals, you know? So obviously money has, uh, money is the, money it really has a lot of power today. And, and we have some, I think some really bad Supreme Court decisions that have given more weight to money in recent time. Citizens United is, uh, if anybody, you know, is the main one. 
What uh, is Citizens United? Citizens United basically says that money is equal to speech and political speech. And so you can do whatever you want with your money to affect political speech in a very baseline way or how it's not exactly what the ruling says, but the, that's how it's been put into place and how it's been used since I believe it's 2010 um, with the ruling. <clears throat> they, they took limits off of how much you could spend limits on. There were some regulations about anonymous donorship. And so influencing elections anonymously, for instance, they, they've stripped all of those regulations and said that you don't have, there's no, no regulations on political speech as far as money goes. And in a, in a way, they've even stripped down political speech to there's very little, but there's some of the, you know, as less, unless you're really advocating intimate violence or lawlessness, they're not going to stop you. They won't stop a politician from speaking. One, the only, the only case of a, in recent times of a politician being uh, convicted for such a, for political speech was Eugene Debs in the early 1900s, who said that that people should, you know, evade or ignore the draft for World War One, hmm. um, and he was in prison. So that was the last time political speech had really been constricted. And and that's a good. There's a good. There's good and bad things from that. But if you're using political speech in a way that debases democracy. Right, and that's really a, a topic today, and necessarily mm-hmm. want to get there, but we don't have to. Um, but if you use political speech in a way that debases, that debases and uh, endangers democracy, is it uh, how free should that speech be? So that's a, that's an interesting question, and I think that's a question that you know, it's left to our politicians today. But it is one of the issues with corporations is that they can now use their influence, uh, their money to influence elections. They can use their influence to influ- uh, their money to influence politicians. They can give unlimited political contributions. No one needs to know about it. They laid out uh, recently, I want to say it was the Senator Whitehouse laid out a, a scheme and where that they, he tracked contributions really from unknown, unknown sources, but there, there was contributions into these uh, funds Political these PACs, political action committees, 501c3s, tax exempt entities that influence politicians and politics and political speech, basically writing on behalf of unknown donors to influence Supreme Court decisions. You know, so how are so they really they've the corporate uh, corporate power has come in and displaced the checks and balances that, that the founders set up and our government is set up with norms and the one thing that that really indicates a strong democracy there's obviously this the structure in of itself the rules the laws regulations inside of the, the government but there's soft power um, in democracies within institutions and norms that are not necessarily written down, but are respected. So uh, something like the uh, best example of that would be George Washington practically could have 
been the president for the rest of his life. In fact, there were several people who wanted to be president for the rest of his life. And in that case, he would have just been another another European monarch. Uh, so he didn't want to do that. He he resigned after his second term and said he wasn't going to run for president again. It was not law until FDR, until Franklin Roosevelt, won a third won a third term, died in office, and then immediately after his death, they made a, a constitutional amendment to limit presidencies to two terms. So over a hundred years worth, uh, well, more than that, but yeah, maybe yeah, over a hundred years uh, of a political norm where no one had run for more than two terms. You know, so political norms are important in democracies. And so. Because it might not be a law, but um, but the person who's running for office will break certain ethical laws, right? Uh, laws that aren't written that just like are unethical to do. Right. right. To add on to kind of the problems of democracy and the corporations, it's almost like they're... Uh, I mean, it's damaging to the the politicians themselves because you know some of these people get into office, you know, and they're they're an idealist, right? And they they want to change the world. And then some corporations like, hey, here's some money if you can do this, right? And then that's when the corruption begins, right? Right. And so the the U.S. government, the founders had this idea before, uh, or they were aware of that potential problem. A lot of the, uh, during the colonial period and really enlightenment up until, I would say even up until recent times, up until modern times, honor, legacy, those were ideas of chivalry, but honor and legacy, I guess, were big influences in people's lives, especially if you were of the aristocratic class. Um, and so in, they used honor and legacy, as, for instance, in Athens, um, in order to pay f- to really to enact taxation. Their taxing policy was a progressive tax policy, was that if the government needed something, they would go to the rich and, uh, and ask for a tax. They would, you know, and the idea was that it was your duty and your honor to be able to do that. And the, the idea that we have for progressive taxation today comes from, and that's where progressive taxation is where um, really you pay by the means, right? So your amount that you're paying is by the, by the means. And that's why we have tax brackets today. Um, you know, if you fall under a certain amount, you don't pay any tax. If you fall on a certain, you know, next amount up, you pay a little bit of tax and so forth and so forth. And the idea and the ethical idea and the moral, the equality, the just idea, the justice idea that the Athenians came up with was, was that those who had more had benefited from the government and the, the entirety, the entire community more so than everyone else. Hmm. And so that their, their success, if you want to call it success, wasn't necessarily on their own merit. It was on the merit of everyone else, all the community working together mm-hmm. in a way. And so that was the political philosophy, I guess the ethical or the philosophical idea behind taxation 
in Athens, right? And they used kind of guilted the or shamed the uh, the rich into paying for these, you know, paying for roads and bridges and aqueducts and things like that. Um, not in Athens or aqueducts in Athens, but <clears throat> and and so that was how taxation worked, progressive taxation. Um, and I think that I think that theory. Uh, that idea really exists. It should. I think it really should play today. And you know, you, I think you mentioned before, uh, or you know, how do you use philosophy in, in modern times? So this is this is one of the one of the times you can do that. You know, the, the philosophical argument that those who have those who have more really have been the beneficiary of what everyone in the community has been working towards. And it's really by a lottery, you know. There's, uh, it's sort of by a lottery. And there's a uh, John Rawls has a, a book recently. He's actually, I say recently, he wrote the book. It was published in 1971, Theory of Justice. And so he looks at all of the current modern day uh, inequality. You know, uh, you hear a lot today from politicians that talk about, you know, uh, economic inequality. Um, Rawls looked at that, and so his idea was that, you know, how do, how do you know if you're in a just society? He had this thought experiment. I don't know if you're familiar with it. He had this thought experiment where called the veil of ignorance, right? Uh, is your do you live in a just society? And the thought experiment goes: if before you were born, you understood and knew. Everything that was happening in the in the in down there and where you're going to be born, and you were able to choose, but you you couldn't choose. You had to be. It was a lottery system. And would you go into a lottery system knowing your percentage chances of what might be going on at the time? You know. And mm -hmm. if you can say no, then your society is probably unjust. Now, I probably didn't do Jack Rawls's. Uh, I didn't do John Rawls's failed ignorance justice there, but I think that's, but that's the overall idea is whether or not, you know, and, and his idea, and he really talks, you know, that idea is, it dates back to these other philosophers um, that I talked about, I mentioned, you know, was that the, your birth is, is really a luck of the draw, you know, uh, you're rich or poor by lottery, uh, by lottery system. That you have no ability to change that. It is, it's just what you are naturally endowed with, mm. by chance. And so, human dignity shouldn't be by chance. With that kind of lottery system, a society is unjust if it's more likely that you'll be born into a really bad situation than it is that you're not, right? Well, I think today we look at justice and we think about there's two types of justice, right? There's, um, but the second, there's two types of justice, um, or three if you look at it. Uh, there's Aristotle talks about three types, um, but there's you, you can look at um, really justice of laws, and then there's justice of equality. So if we're looking at equality, and what's equality? Not everybody, it's obvious that not everyone's going to be born and shouldn't be expected. Everybody's going to be, be rich or born rich. And so I think 
And this goes down into some of the psychological issues of human psychology. Um, you know, everybody wants to be rich. Um, and they, you know, they're either mad they're not rich or they want to be rich. Um, and that's some human psychology. And that's one of the exploitation points um, that people can use is like a, that psychological factor. Um, people want to be rich. They want to have, really, it's not, it's not nothing about wanting to be rich in of itself. It's a means to the ends of having your needs met well, easily, right? Some of it is, right? So there's the, the vanity portion of it, the thumus, as um, I think it was, it wasn't Aristotle, it was Plato, talked about the thumus, um, that idea that, that drive for glory and vanity and fame. And, uh, and that's, that's kind of what, that's what the Athenians used to get people to pay taxes, right? It was, it was that thumus. It, it is a little more into it about thumus, but that was kind of was part of it. But people want to be rich because they want their they they want their needs met, you know. Hmm. Um, so justice, I don't think it's people have an unreal expectation of what's possible for themselves. Uh, sometimes we're not all going to be billionaires. We're not all going to be millionaires, for instance, right? There's only one percent now uh, of the population, or even less, is millionaires or whatever. But if everyone has the same opportunity that's not a millionaire or not a rich person. Everyone has the same opportunity to put themselves in a position to do so, all things equal. Then you can say that perhaps that is a just society. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what um, the founding fathers envisioned when they, you know, when they wrote the constitution and the declaration of independence, they wanted a, a land of opportunity, right? Right, land of opportunity, land of and the the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. You are all equal to pursue happiness to get you know as equal as as one another. Right. Uh, of course, there's some there's you know the issues of your ability to pursue happiness from other endowment. Right. So the the, le the luck of the draw genetically. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but other, uh, those. Those biological issues aside, or even, you know, shouldn't stop you. Even that shouldn't stop you from pursuing the happiness that you want. And given the ability to do so and have the opportunity to do that. That's where Rawls would say, well, obviously, yeah, people here, you know, in the United States, for instance, there's injustice everywhere. You know, the opportunity or the inequality among um, the classes and, and you know, America like doesn't like to talk about class system. Um, we don't think we're in we don't think we're in a class system, but we are. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, it's well defined, but you know, there's the mixed government in a way, and really, what uh, who was the uh, there was there, some of these uh, philosophers talk about mixed government was talked about by uh, Aristotle, and it's kind of what we have today is mixture between. Uh, a, really a mix between uh, all three forms, you know, few, many, and, and one, right? So that's a mixed government, but the, a large middle class of people gives the best, gives really the best government because everyone, most people that are, uh, I say satisfied, but everyone's 
understanding and they've all had equal access to have a role in their say and have their voice heard. So that, you know, if everyone has their voice heard, everyone has equal weight, uh, everyone has equal opportunity. It's about as just as a human, as human society can be, right? Um, yes. So and I, we're getting there. Uh, we're very slowly getting there. And, and um, oh, how does Aristotle talks about some of oh, the way he puts it, but it's um, basically there's disparities of, uh, of both sides, right? So they, you have, uh, or it vacillates, right? And so there's some, some literature that talks about that as well. Some poems that talk about the swinging pendulum it's, uh, William Butler Yeats has a, a poem on it that discusses the, the swing of the pendulum of history and time. And, and really, if we look at uh, history of, of man, the, we look at liberty and freedom vacillates between highs and lows. Um, and perhaps one day it, it, it will stop. I, I guess we, I say stop, but we'll get into the middle, a middle place to where and that's kind of what we're looking for is, is somewhere in the middle that we can, that everyone has the same opportunity and everybody's be rich and everybody's be poor. But the middle class, uh, there's a large middle class that is, that have all the same opportunity and have a, a good, decent uh, standard of living. So I, I think that would be, a, you know, I think when we're looking at what justice is today and what's a equal society today, that's kind of what the goal is, I think. The difficulty there is that the laws are being made and and drawn up that are only benefiting a certain class of people, and it's, it's the corporations, really. And those the ones who are skewing all the laws to benefit them. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, uh, not only is it benefiting them, it's also pouring more money into their pockets um, by benefit. <laughs> by benefit. Um, yeah. And so, you know, there's you know, the last. 50 years worth of economic theory was that uh, corporations' only goal is to produce profits. Well, if it's only produce profits and there's no other considerations that they, and that's not only is it the only, it's a theory, it is law. Um, mm -hmm. It's actually, as long as they, uh, as long as they're showing that they're trying to do the best for the stakeholders and the shareholders, CEOs can get away with almost anything. Yes. Almost. Have you ever heard of Dr. Chris Ryan? No, I don't think so. Uh, doesn't ring a bell. He wrote um, Sex at Dawn and Civilized to Death. And he kind of talks about this idea of corporations almost having a life force of their own. Right? They're like this thing that... Uh, their only goal is to gain uh, revenue, right? Gain profit, get more and more money. And when you work for a corporation, um, they kind of, well, so like corporations have this, uh, they kind of hack into you, hey, like we need to make as much money as possible, right? And I mean, that, that makes sense. But, you know, when you take that into a global or national scale, it becomes problematic um, with all these corporations trying to get as much money as possible. It can 
significantly reduce the quality of life of the people of a nation. Yeah, of course. And, and obviously when they're sucking up all the, all the potential revenue and wealth of a, of a, of a, the people, you know, then obviously everyone's standard of living is going to decrease. But when you look at, uh, say, just to go a little bit of background on corporations, corporations are never meant for this type of, the, to be these money vehicles, I guess you'd say. Corporations are originally used to divest risk uh, from the shareholders um, and be a vehicle of pooling money and pooling resources to accomplish some sort of merchant goal. Right. So a lot of them, a lot of really early corporations were, you have the Indian, the, the um, tea companies, right? So the British tea companies who are trading in India. And you have certain, you know, so corporations in the, the colonies, the American colonies, to establish, you know, colony, their forts here and some land and uh, receive land and then take some of the resources to start trading back with with Britain. So really, and they were given these grants by the governments to do this thing for the good of the people, for the welfare of the rest of the community, for the general welfare. And that was the general idea. Uh, the, the real philosophy was that you could do this, we'll allow you to form this, this group of uh, cons really consortium of, uh, of money, and you can pull it in this vehicle this juridical vehicle that we call a corporation and we'll reduce your risk. You won't have personal liability. The liability will fall on the corporation, uh, but it has to be for the public welfare. That idea is going away and now it's only, we're only left with, with this vehicle being used for monetary gain for the shareholders. Right. So the public welfare idea is gone. The, the general welfare idea and purpose for these corporations is gone. If you start reinstituting the, the general welfare, then you can start going, you can start shutting down and you could shut down. I mean, I think it's a drastic move, but things that you could have more of a judicial backing than a I guess, jurisprudence to start saying that you're damaging the country, you're damaging our resources, you're damaging um, the people and community around you. You have to stop. It gives us a more, I guess I, it would give legislators a more, in a way, more ethical and moral footing to start regulating companies. And Obviously, that's what they don't want. The corporations don't want regulation so they can do all these things to extract money from the from their consumers, from the consumers that, that uh, purchase their products or the governments that allow them to extract resources from, from their lands and our communal land. So regulations, I guess, you know, if you look at, if you look at economies and the market and if you look at economies in a way that are akin to um, ecosystems, right? So biological ecosystems. There are levels of ecosystems. There's levels of, um, you know, 
uh, consumers in the ecosystem. You have prey, you have the herbivores, right? If something's unchecked, kind of like the, the balance of powers are unchecked, uh, one of those one of those entities, one of those beings, the animals, goes haywire, and you get things like. Uh, well, a good example. A good example is the nutra rat in, in Louisiana. Uh, I'm from New Orleans, and so South Louisiana has been plagued by the nutra rat, which is a South American invasive species from South America, and really doesn't have any check. There's no, there's no large, you know, the the animals that would be prey to them. There are prey. I mean, they do have those animals here in in Louisiana, but the real check on the nutra rat in South America was drought season and so their numbers would dwindle during drought during the drought they don't have that here in louisiana uh there's no drought in louisiana well maybe with global global warming there might be soon but uh climate change there might be starting to have droughts but the uh wetlands are wet and and warm all year round uh and so the nutrient has no there's no check on its uh ability to ro- procreate and so they're eating our swampland out of house and home. Uh, they're literally just destroying the swamp. Corporations in a marketplace are similar. When they are unchecked, they can go out and really gobble up all the money and all the really all the resources, and they can stifle competition. And so that's their goal, right? So their goal is to become on the money. I mean, every every company wants to have be the one source of, of goods for that market. Mm-hmm. Um, so really the goal of every, I mean, if you, if your goal is to only is, is to accomplish this, to receive money, then money is the food, right? So they're going to eat up as much money as they can. And to be, a, if you're a monopoly, you're head of the, of that ecosystem. Regulations help control that. Right, antitrust acts. Right, the Sherman Antitrust Act. When we started, when the U.S. government started breaking up corporations for being monopolies, they had gotten too big. Well, why did they get too big? Because there was no regulations, right? And how do you, you know, that's the the checks and balances of of economies are regulations by the government, letting companies go. You know, having no checks or balances is not a good idea. And we see that the results of that, the economy, our, our resources, our environment have seen the, the really seen very damaging results from that. We have the, you know, uh, regulation was a, a major problem uh, with many of the catastrophes, uh, environmental catastrophes, like the PP oil spill, for instance, in 2010, uh, there were they were left alone to regulate themselves in a way. And, and that's what happened. And we have you know, catastrophes like that. So regulating industry is, is akin to keeping checks on a balanced ecosystem. So balance is important. I think balance is important everywhere, really. You know, balance of power in, in uh, government and economy and ecosystems, biology as well. And so I use, you know, when I think of the way I think about, well, the way I think about human systems is the way I think about natural systems. Natural systems need to be um, harmonious and in balance. And so do human systems. They're, we need to balance our natural drive for st- 
stuff, right? You know, natural drive for property, or natural drive for fame, with the with the hierarchical, the higher ordered moral ethics of equality uh, that our founding fathers talked about, and so we have gotten a well aware, well away from equality, um, thinking that individualism can solve for the communal higher are they higher ordered communal thinking that somehow we can we can make everything individual and personal and it's going to make the it's going to solve for the communal issues that we have or the the equality issues and that's it's not just a poor philosophical argument it's also it's it's not seen in data and statistics. We've got 70 years, 50 years of statistics that show that unregulated corporations amass massive amounts of money and create dramatic amounts of inequality, mm -hmm. right? Trickle down doesn't work. So we have those systems to show. We have data that shows that the trickle down tax theory doesn't work, you know, um, and it drew all boils down back. It comes back to equality and justice. And, um, so, you know, the United States has some underlying ethos issues, I think, and, and the fact that we are imbalanced in our, imbalanced in our way of thinking on individualism versus communalism or, um, you know, the, the whole versus the individual. And we need to balance it out more. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the natural state of any system is is balanced, right? I mean, that's what, uh, I mean, second law of thermodynamics, everything will, chaos is always increasing, but it's always increasing towards a point of equilibrium, right? And w with that being said, if we have an unbalanced system, then it's going to collapse until it is equal, right? Unless we fix it ourselves. Right. That's right. Uh, so, yeah, you can use physics here as well. Physics ecology you know they all point to the need for balance and i think really american the american experiment experiment is imbalanced at the moment and uh we're in a very dangerous precarious position with our government with social media with the use of these psychological hacks uh, i mentioned before from ever bernays puts democracies all over the world in a very precarious position um, and how to balance that out and bring it back from a very, very large pendulum swing to one direction. And if you look at even, you know, the, the discussion about communism, right? Well, communism is a swing in the opposite direction, right? It's an extreme communal organization uh, with a very top-heavy, singular uh, politic, if, if you want to use that term, but a very one-party system. And it's all based on, well, the theory of it is based on the philosophy is based on and based on the, the whole working together, but it's not, no communist country has really ever been in place, like it hasn't been put in place in a very, in the system that there is, that it expounds to say, you know, the, the, no one has ever actually ever followed the philosophy that they talk about. Uh, no, no communist country has done so really. There always ends up being haves and haves nots, which is not a uh, not one of the fact you know not what their goal is for for communism. 
Well, there's but, like a, you know, I think there's a natural strive for power for any, for any living organism. I mean, your, your natural instinct is to survive. And if you want to survive, then you need to be powerful, right? You need to, uh, um, well, you need to struggle to survive, right? And, and struggling takes power, right? And whether that's intellectual, financial, physical, um, you need power to survive. And if you have a natural instinct to survive, uh, or if you have a natural instinct to obtain power, then, I mean, communism isn't going to work, right? Communism isn't going to work. Uh, everyone, and, and it's communism isn't going to work just because of the same reasons that the U.S. government, or the founding fathers, saw. There was a the natural inclination for man is to to be to gain power, um, and these ambitions for people in power to come to power and to gain more power as they get there. Mm -hmm. um, so founding fathers saw the issue and, and tried to work with it and tried to fix it. I say fix it, but try to mitigate it, right? Mm -hmm. No mitigating power really with a, a single party, which really single party just end up, ends up becoming, it doesn't work. It, it, single party doesn't work because there's, it is becoming a totalitarian system or a very small oligarchy and that's what they have in in some mm -hmm. of the China. The China, for instance, is very oligarchical power structure, and is ruled by deduction of personal freedoms, out of you know, and ruling by fear. So I am thankful that we are <laughs> we're not under that structure. Um, yes, but our democracy has some has some flaws, and um, they're being exploited currently. And it's our job to, I think it's our job in the next several decades to fix it. Well, we'll see what we can do in the next few years, right? Uh, it might take longer than that, uh, but I'm well, hopeful and uh, I think we can. Yeah. <laughs> next few decades, maybe centuries, maybe never. Hopefully not centuries. Hopefully not centuries. Yeah. Um, but I think people, I think, you know, they, Rousseau talked about <clears throat> informed consent and the uh, founding fathers talk about informed consent um, and education is important. Um, really it's informing ourselves of what's going on around us and taking ourselves out of the bread and circus that are, as the Romans talked about bread and circuses controlling the crowds and the mobs, taking ourselves out of the entertainment cycles right and and really informing ourselves on what's going on around us is going to help us is going to lead us hopefully to informing ourselves and creating spaces for people to to vote differently uh, and choose different sets of politicians we have the power to remove anybody we want every two years in congress they're up for re-election every two years so we have the ability to vote out anybody we want we can keep from complaining, but people that complain and don't vote, you know, there's, they're not helping themselves. They're not helping themselves. They're not helping their community, you know, so there's, but it gets, it's all that in that desire to even that desire. And this is where the, this is where the social media problem comes in. Even people who want to inform themselves can get sucked into these rabbit holes uh, of, you know, of, misinformation, false information, propaganda that will skew their reality, uh, skew, skew reality and the facts that they 
that they're making their decisions on. And so they're not if they're not making informed consent at that point because the, they don't have the, all the right data. You can't give informed consent if you don't have the right data. So that's one reason why social media is so dangerous because it's skewing what general will is uh, through something that's not informed consent. People aren't performing. They think they're in. They think they are informed and voting, giving informed consent with their vote, but they're really not. Some of it's their fault. Some of it's not their fault. Um, some of it they're being they're mentally being exploited psychologically because of the things, some of the baseline desires and needs for people. They're being exploited in that direction. Um, and goes back to Edward Bernays. He taught us how to do that. <laughs> so. Yeah, you kind of need to protect yourself from, well, for one, from false information, but also from manipulative rhetoric. It's it, sometimes it's not easy to to spot it, mm -hmm. um, but you're right. So the spotting manipulative rhetoric, or even data, that, and that's uh, you know being a science, being trained in science first, um, and even political scientists today are statisticians oftentimes, but being trained in how to spot good information and bad information as a as uh, coming with a science background is is important um and so i don't think we're i don't think our educational systems teach people how to do that mm -hmm. well enough obviously it's not well enough um today but the, i don't think we're taught to think very well we're not taught we're taught we are taught in our schools to memorize things memorize bits and pieces of information but not how to think about it um and it's really how you think about the things, how you think about those pieces of information that really makes the difference. Anybody can, you know, people can memorize things all the time. People memorize all kinds of different things. But it's how you interact those pieces of information with other, other bits of information uh, that's really important. So synthesizing um, information together, we don't, and how to think about information if, you know, uh, in a mathematical, if you would just give mathematical way, you know, you can't equal A and B equals C. You can't figure that out from the pieces. We're not being taught well enough. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so spotting these, some of this, some of these pieces are really difficult because what they do is, and these pieces, they will skew something to, if they are, they'll skew it in a way that will grab your attention. It'll then reinforce something that you already believe and then make a connection that doesn't make any sense hmm. to something else. And so you see there's there's these memes all over the all over the place. Mostly on Facebook is a good place for all this stuff really. Social media in general, but Facebook is one of the worst in distributing these propaganda memes really uh, just false information yeah and you know you see them all over the place they they make statements that are you know either they're untrue they're uh, making assumptions and then the base and then the the bottom line is something that's radical um you know and just doesn't make any doesn't have any connection between the 
other statements above it, right? Yeah. You know, a and B do not equal X, right? Uh, mm-hmm. A, B, C equals C, yeah. But it's so worded well enough to where you're already reading it. And if you believe the things, if you agree with the other things that were stated, they get you to the last bottom line idea. And they're like, well, yeah, of course. Of course that makes sense. Hmm. Um, but if you take it out of, if you take those things out of context, you would, wouldn't necessarily think about, oh, well, that, no, I wouldn't do that. You know? So, but it leads people to think that those things are okay. And so it's all, you know, some things that, yeah, they they broach ideas and they, they get you to see ideas that if you were just talking about it with somebody, they wouldn't necessarily think was okay. But if you see it in the meme, you might have a reaction there, you know, oh, I, no, I wouldn't do that. That doesn't make any sense. We don't want that. You see it again. You see the other friends posting it or you see it's posted a couple of times. You're like, oh, yeah, I don't like that. But you see it again and it'll wear, it'll wear you down psychologically um, to where you'll, Basically, the stimulus, you're numb, right, to that particular stimuli or that concept or idea. You've been numb to it, and so you're accepting of it, right? It's a, it's a psychological, it's really a, it's going back to Bernays and Freud, uh, you know. So, you know, social media is dangerous to democracy, uh, unfortunately, and I think we've, we've seen that. Uh, I don't know if it's the, uh, I think it may or may not be the biggest biggest issue i thought i didn't think i didn't think it was until recently but um it is of the two we have out of control corporations and social media together is just very dangerous very dangerous place for democracy all over the world Hmm. well it's like a it's like a polarity machine right it's like a it's an anger a polarity and a like a tension machine right all geared towards selling you things. They're trying to sell you something and necessarily not trying to sell you, not always trying to sell you a, yeah. a thing, but they're trying to sell you an idea, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> exactly. And it's polarity. It's us versus them. Um, it's very tribal based. Um, and, it, and it talks about them being, you know, the bad guys, whereas if you just talk to those other people, you might have, you probably have more in common with them than you do the people who are trying to tell you that you don't have in common with them. Um, yes, definitely. And that's, that concept's been used a lot uh, throughout history and time, you know. It's us versus them where, you know, well, why aren't we against you instead, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, well, there, and I, I think that's the point. Yeah, I mean, they're kind of like, they're pitting us against each other when really we should be against them up there, not us down here. (laughs) Right. And you look at, uh, and that's really kind of how power gets exploited upwards. Um, It's saying, you know, well, what classes or what, what groups need to form or come together to oppose the tyrannical power. And so if the if, if the power can be, get more power through, you know, allying themselves with people that wouldn't necessarily be allies with, then they'll stay in power for a lot longer. Um, so that's part of the issue. Um, you know, the I mentioned the founding fathers looked at uh, Rome and just you know they they modeled 
their idea over um, the really a Roman Republic, but they they wanted to they wanted to freeze the Roman Republic in a state that was about fifty or hundred years before fifty years before uh, the Roman Empire uh, before the Republic fell, and the falling of the Roman Republic really. It, it was because of several different, not uprisings, but several different populist groups coming through and changing the way government was run and changing the power structure. Um, so you had several leaders that wanted equality. There were there were issues about issues. There were current issues about immigration. <laughs> there were current issues. There was issues about immigration and citizenship. Who could vote? who could own property. And so those issues, they had a very large, you know, non-citizen uh, base in Rome at the time. And those people really need, they had a, they had a just, they had a rightful complaint to be included in the government as citizens. Um, and so they had differently, they had a, about two or three different leaders that came through about 100 years before Julius Caesar came through using similar ideas and tactics politically as, as these leaders did. They were not necessarily as demagoguery, as, they didn't use demagogue tactics so, as much. Um, and, and Julius Caesar and himself didn't as well, didn't use it much, but what allowed the, the fall of Rome, the Roman Republic, were these norms being disrupted and these demagogues and these populist parties coming up and, and disrupting the power source and then allowed for one particular, he wasn't powerful when he started, but Julius Caesar you know, came in, made allies with other powerful people and became an emperor and took the power for himself. And so if we're not careful, that's something that could happen to the United States as well and other democracies across the country or across the world. Of course, it didn't end well for him. No, but his son, his son became hmm. emperor. Yeah, that's true. And well, the empire, I mean, and the, the Roman Empire lasted for another, well, the Roman Empire lasted for until about four, 450 or so. And then the Byzantine Empire, the other side of the empire, lasted until 1453. Hmm. So the power kept on going. So, we, I mean, it's, we're at a place now in the United States. Um, we should be careful. Yeah, I mean that's definitely a huge cautionary tale about well, what we need to worry about as far as our future as a nation, and even our future as just a global economy and a global. I mean, there's there's almost a global government, you know. I mean, with. Uh, I mean, not a, not like a real government, but, you know, we're all collaborating and especially with technology and our ability to communicate, you know, there's things that people do in China that affect us all the way over here, you know? Right. Of course. So. And then you have, yeah, there's, we can talk about a little bit more about Kant, uh, talked about cosmopolitanism and had this idea really of um, universal universality being a citizen of the world uh, and having a world world uh, one world government, League of Nations really was an idea that came from Kant. 
So yeah, we could talk about that. It's longer, but I think we're we we might be almost out of time, huh? Yeah, yeah, we yeah, it's definitely getting to that <laughs> that time. I mean, do you have any uh, thing else you'd like to say? Uh, no, I think that's about it. We talked, we we hit on a bunch of different uh, topics today. To, um, you know, the the idea that democracy is in a very precarious position to be taken seriously. I think is probably the ending ending comment. But I think as uh, I think as as Martin Luther King said, the arc of justice, you know, the uh, the arc of history bends towards justice. So. I think we keep working towards justice and equality, we get there. Perfect. I like that. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, Greg. Cool. And if anyone has any questions, comments, or concerns, just email into .v .absurd .podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.